Happy Saturday. It is October 9th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I am Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Hi, Ashley. Michael, how are you? I'm great. You know what tomorrow is? I was like, October 10th? What is it? It is October 10th. It's my New York anniversary. No. How many years? I can't even say. Boom. <laughs> Probably more than you've been alive. What was your first job like when you moved here? I came here to take an internship at Spy Magazine with Graydon and Kurt Anderson, and it changed my life. So that was, uh, yeah, I came here. I took the train from Chicago, believe it or not. that's That's how long ago it was. I took the train. And then I started as an intern, and a few months later, I was brought on staff as a uh, reporter. Changed my life. Marvelous. Well, serendipitous. Michael, celebrate that anniversary. Go to La Grande for dinner, a movie at Film Forum. You've got it all figured out. You know, speaking of New York, we didn't get a chance last week to thank all the fans of Morning Meeting who showed up at our Morning Meeting meetup for coffee, right? That was so fun. Thank you all for joining us. It was such a treat. I was way over caffeinated that day. So if I sounded crazier than normal, I apologize. All right. Well, let's delve into this delicious issue of Airmail. Alessandra Stanley, our, our illustrious co-editor, is um, as much of a fan of television as, as we are, in fact, probably more so. And she has been watching Dope Sick, which is the new series about the Sackler family and the development of OxyContin. And she's got a view from here this week uh, that expresses her shock, outrage, and disgust about the fact that uh, the Sackler family has gotten away with so much and paid so little in return for their multitude of sins. Graydon calls this era that we're living in the grifted age, right, versus the gilded age. This is the era in which the very, very rich can basically do anything that they want with no accountability. Um, And the Sacklers probably will never be held fully liable, even though their family members owned and ran this company, marketed this horrible drug, despite all of the damning evidence that what existed in abundance. You know, there's a lot going on right now in terms of the appeal of the bankruptcy court's decision. And as this is all going on, we've got the Sacklers uh, on our television screens through this really great new dramatic series on Hulu. We'll have Danny Strong on later, who is one of the co-creators and writers of the show. And what I love is, is, you know, if you've read the books about Oxycontin and the Sacklers, this is a, 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 puts a great sort of face on it. It's a, it's a limited series on Hulu, but uh, starring Michael Keaton. And, you know, as you say, it just gets into how this family invented this drug and lied to get it approved. You know, I think part of her outrage in The View from Here this week is basically, as you point out, that they're never going to really be held accountable. And she points out that when Big Tobacco was forced to pay after all the litigation, Big Tobacco paid $200 billion in penalties after it was sued by the uh, United States, Sackler families, is only going to pay $4.3 billion for everything they've sort of brought into this world. So it's a, you might say it's a little out of balance. So it's a great piece. And um, we'll hear more from Danny in a little bit. I have to bring something up, not to say that this is on, scale of the, on the scale of the Sacklers, but Michael, I can't get enough of this new Katie Couric book, all these uh, revelations that are coming out in the New York Post about it. Someone has a copy there. It's not us. It's uh, Julia tells us it's under embargo. It's coming out later this month. But I am so surprised to see America's sweetheart behaving so badly. America's sweetheart is America's beef heart. She's got a lot of beef, right? She's got a lot of beef. She's like she's kind of going out there and slinging mud. I mean, even her husband who died of cancer 20 years ago is not immune from her criticism in this book. And I'm so surprised by this. Like to me, this is the ultimate Gen Z trolling 
coming from an ultimate icon of boomer success. And it's very bizarre. On a less on a less cheery note, Michael, I think we should talk about Bill Cohan's story and the issue, which you edited to Brilliant Effect. It is about the tiny Manhattan law firm of Titler and Titler. And this nine-person firm is behind some of the nastiest divorces on Wall Street. Tell us more. What I love about Bill's story uh, under our Ways of Wall Street kind of column this week, New York, is, if you've lived here long enough, you, you realize like there's all these little niche specialty businesses and, 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 and uh, you know, it's always like, I got a guy who can help you. This. I, I know the place we'd send you. Well, turns out if you're a Goldman Sachs partner and you need a divorce, you more likely than not, are going to ask the small nine-partner firm, just nine partners, Titler & Titler, which is run by Michael and John Titler, father and son, because they're a family-oriented, to handle your divorce. It turns out that this is their specialty, representing current and former Goldman Sachs partners in their divorces. But, you know, they do take on other clients at other times. They took on Matt Lauer's ex-wife. They took on David Mugrabi, the billionaire collector. Uh, in his split from um, his wife, Libby, they get around, they do, you know, they, they take on some other clients. But this is a fascinating look inside New York power when it comes to divorce and New York money, because in this piece, Bill brings a face to all this by looking at, fascinatingly enough, a long-running divorce battle that pits a Goldman partner, Jonah Torrey, who's a woman, she's 46 years old, and she specializes in high private equity deals. And she's been waging a... Um, divorce against her husband, T. Grinatori. Grinatori makes about $10 million a year. There's a marital asset worth about $30 million. And Tiku can't get any real representation. He's representing himself right now because basically every law firm in town is reluctant to go against this firm. It's a super compelling piece that'll look inside how New York power works and uh, how it impacts people's lives. Another, another great take by Bill Cohan. If you've been living under a rock for the last two weeks, you may not know that Squid Game, which is a South Korean television show, is now on Netflix. It's on track to become the biggest hit for Netflix globally ever. We've got a great piece this week by Jade Cuddle uh, looking at how this show came to be and ended up on Netflix and became this juggernaut, um, which is already, by the way, I'd say... I've got my Halloween costume now after watching Squid Game. <laughs> Which character are you going to be? I want to be one of those dudes in the red thing with the square on their faces and wah, 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 talking like that. Uh, yeah, just freaky, scary, uh, dystopian dude in a red jumpsuit. It's like, it's like that's, that's, I'm just going to walk around New York City. I'll fit right in. I, you know, I would say, Michael, that you don't strike me as the type of guy to dress up on Halloween, except I've seen you on Halloween and you always have one of the best costumes in the village. If you go trick-or-treating on 11th Street this year, you're going to run into Michael and you're probably going to see him dressed up like the Squid Game guy. Hello. <laughs> you better bring some candy with you. Otherwise, the kids are going to be having nightmares forever. I think what's fascinating about Squid Game to underneath all it is, is, you know, the director, Huang Dong-hyuk, who is quoted in this piece, he said, you know, he talked about how he came up with this idea. And, you know, he talks about he, he grew up uh, rather poor in South Korea. It's a country that has undergone enormous shifts in its societies. Points out their gross national income in the 1950s was $60, $67. And now, in uh, as recently as 2018, it's $30,000. So it's enormous shifts of wealth and, and social status. And, and uh, it's a, if you saw uh, Parasite, you know how um, these themes are being explored in South Korean 
pop culture movies and, and TVs. And this is, I think, just another, you know, as, as horror-based as it is, a very, uh, there's, there's some very smart ideas that are be, being explored inside of it. Indeed. Okay. Well, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, more exciting news for all of you New Yorkers or people coming, first of all, we miss our tourists here in New York. We really miss the tourists and that they really give the city so much of its energy. And when you're not here, we're a little bit sad. So we're going to give you some more reasons to come back. We've got a lot of great new restaurant openings coming this fall. And Laura Nielsen tackles perhaps the buzziest one, which is Ciciamo, a new restaurant from Danny Meyer that is opening on October 15th in Manhattan West, which is an area, it's a new development of Manhattan. It's kind of sandwiched between Moynihan Station on 34th and 8th and Hudson Yards, which is directly to the west of it. Um, And she kind of raves about this place. The menu is great. The food is not especially overpriced. The atmosphere is inviting, and you don't have to walk through a shopping mall to get there, best of all. Yeah, I want to go there. You know, and and on another food note, I like this little dispatch we have in Airmail's diary this week uh, by George Kaladrakis. He has a great little note uh, that for the second straight year, the baguette deemed the best in Paris was produced by a Tunisian-born baker. And in fact, five of the last 10 winners have been Tunisian. Uh, This year's winner is Macron Macroute. He's 42. And he entered France as an illegal immigrant 19 years ago. He now owns his own bakery, La Boulangère du Rilly. And he beat out 171 other bakers to win the Prix de la Baguette. According to the Times of London, George says he shook with emotion after learning he had won the coveted prize, which gives him the right to supply bread to the presidential palace for a year. That's a nice little story. I love it. It's got me jonesing for a big crusty baguette right now with butter. We actually, Michael, we got to talk restaurants while we're on the subject because there's a lot of news this week. First of all, Pete Wells eviscerated 11 Madison Park, the fanciest restaurant certainly in New York and perhaps in the United States. Second of all, no, the, 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 the restaurant re- listings came out with Noma in the number one spot. Yeah, the 50 best restaurants released their list. I think it was yesterday, Noma being number one. And my personal favorite restaurant globally, Granium, is number two. Have you ever be- eaten at no- either one? No, I, I was in Copenhagen, but I did not. By what, the, the time I got there, he had closed up Noma and his little um, sort of sabbatical. Oh, yeah. Well, I wasn't able to get a reservation there when I went a few years ago, but I was able to get a lunch reservation off the wait list at Geranium. And I, I generally don't like those, like, three Michelin star, you know, heavily coursed, like, you know, six-hour-long meals. But this one was worth it. It was so much fun. It's such a beautiful dining room situated weirdly in a soccer stadium. So if you go into the kitchen, you can look at through the kitchen windows into the soccer stadium. Sometimes there's a game happening, but it's a really special place and a really great team that runs that restaurant. I'm just thrilled for them. Let's move on to some more sobering news. We've got Danny Strong here who created the show Dope Sick. He's going to tell us all about how he turned the Sackler family saga into some very compelling television, which is now out on Hulu. Welcome, Danny. Danny, let's talk about this show. Uh, it's crazy. I saw the pilot. Michael saw it too. Well, how did you he- first hear about the Sacklers? Like, do you remember sort of your perception of them and of OxyContin? Like, when did this interest you as a subject matter for a show? I think I first heard about it when probably a good majority of the country first heard about it, which was Patrick Raiden Keefe's New Yorker article. 
And then that was quickly followed up. I think a, a big article in Esquire came out right afterwards, you know, right at that time. Patrick's article really broke through. I read it right away. And I was, you know, like anyone else who read that, stunned, shocked, disturbed by the story. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go do that as a limited series. Uh, I literally just read it and uh, moved on uh, in a way with the disturbing tale of, of the Sacklers and the marketing of OxyContin, you know, swirling in the back of my head. And then... I don't know, six weeks later, two months later, somewhere in there, John Goldwyn, really terrific producer, very successful producer, came to me and said, do you want to write and direct a movie about the Sacklers? What I love about the origin story is you you keep using it, it's a tale, but it's really so much of the dope sick is is this morality tale, right? And it's how the Sackler family, with your villain, so to speak, Richard Sackler, kind of find this opportunity, create this market for pain, which had never existed before, and then manage to get the Food and Drug Administration to approve an unprecedented labeling of it. Basically, you know, they say like less than 1% of people who use this will ever become addicts, right? Yeah. And they get get the time release uh, of the drug as a sort of like good thing for everyone and it's it's you know this confluence of all these horrible things which i think that the part of the harrowing power of the show is you know you see it play out in these communities right and these people just get caught in this cyclone and and lives ended and ripped apart right absolutely yeah and what makes the story profound i mean it's there's a number of elements to it that are that are profound just the extent to which Purdue Pharma lied and the way that they lied. I mean, at times it gets to be devious, you know, creating fake blood charts, creating fake studies. It's incredibly devious and manipulative and deceptive and deceitful, the manner in which they lied about the drug. But where this story, and and just that would be a, a completely fascinating, important, profound American tale, right? But what takes this to a whole other level is how that the institutions of government that are supposed to prevent a company from lying to the extent that Purdue Pharma lied, or lying at all, hopefully, that those institutions failed the nation. The FDA failed the nation in creating that label that you that you brought up. And you know, the guy who wrote the label, or the guy that approved the label, and probably wrote it himself for them, 18 months later, goes and takes a job at Purdue Pharma, right? So it's, it's sort of the ultimate story of the revolving door and the dangers of, of, of the revolving door and the treachery of what the revolving door can do. And in this case, the revolving door created the opioid crisis that we're still you know, living with today and sadly is, is even getting more exasperated from the, from the pandemic. For listeners who haven't seen it yet, obviously, but you've got Michael Keaton in this, which is Always a great thing to watch, but a terrific cast. But to me, it's, you know, you've got, I hope I'm doing it justice here, but to me, it's almost this collision between the insider with big tobacco, but now you have big pharma sort of intersecting with Spotlight. That's not because Michael Keaton's in it, but just you see the the reporting uh, and, and, and the, the digging that these DE agents and, and, and state's attorneys have to do to sort of build a case when there's so many layers they've got to dig through and how they stick with it, which is, you know, they're... Again, it's it's nice to see some heroes in the in in the show, but you realize how hard they had to fight to win these cases, right? Absolutely, and you know I think the insider is kind of the perfect template for the show, and it's one that me and Barry Levinson talked about to a great extent. 
that we were doing, you know, basically the insider with Big Pharma. And and when you discuss the heroes, it was knowing uh, or sort of uncovering that there were a few heroes in this. People that tried to bring justice to Purdue Pharma, that tried to stop Purdue Pharma, uh, was ultimately what made me think there's a drama here that people would, A, want to see, so it's not just some completely bleak, depressing story, but one that at times is actually quite exciting, plays out like a thriller. And for me, it wasn't personal why I wanted to tell this story. It was um, outrage. I was outraged when I read about what Purdue Pharma had done. And at the time, it, it, you know, when that first article came out, it appeared that um, there weren't going to be really any consequences for them. It really is a diabolical drug what it does to your brain and how it changes your brain chemistry. And once you're addicted, which can happen pretty easily, I mean, it could happen some people, I think in a week, two weeks, once you're addicted, you could end up in so much pain without it that, that you'll do anything for it. One of the things I loved about the show is, of course, the casting. Where did you start in the process of casting? And what do you think drew some of these actors to these characters? The first hire was one of my all-time heroes, uh, which was Barry Levinson, to direct the show. And once he signed on to direct, it was, it was really thrilling for me. I mean, his, so many of his films are so seminal to me. Either childhood seminal or as an artist, you know, writer, director seminal. So, so that, was, that was really exciting. And then the next step was casting Dr. Phoenix. And the first offer we made was to Michael Keaton. I think for him, it was it was very personal. His nephew had died of an overdose. And then I think he just really liked the script and was and was really drawn to the material. Shifting gears for a second, because you've gone into film geek territory. Sure. <laughs> and it says here on things that I never believe on, on Wikipedia, <laughs> that as a child, you rented videos at a place called Video Archives and became friends as a ten, when you were a 10-year-old with a clerk there named Quentin Tarantino. Is this true? Yes, Quentin Tarantino was my video store clerk. I was really into adult movies. Does that mean pornos? No, no, okay. that is that is outrageous. Just checking. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking I, about. This we is grew so up in an age when adult entertainment meant adult videos meant something else. Okay. Yeah, no, that's so, fair. That's fair. No, I, I like to uh, grown up movies. How about that? Is that? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like Diner, that would be a grown up movie. Like Diner, okay. exactly. Uh, you know, all that jazz and Chinatown were two of my favorite childhood movies. You know, which is not normal, I think, for uh, for an eight year old. And so they had opened this video store in Manhattan Beach, which is where I grew up, and it was this avant-garde video store. And so my mom took me there because she knew I liked grown-up movies. I don't want to say adult movies. And so we would we we started going to this video store, which was also you know maybe ten minutes from our house. And uh, the video store clerk, the main kind of guy there, was a 25, 24 year old Quentin Tarantino who uh, I quickly befriended, and I spent so much time, and this was, I was more like, I think 11 or 12, or, or maybe I was 10, I don't remember the, but it was over those few years, and I actually spent so much time in video archives talking with Quentin and hanging out with him that my nickname was, was uh, Little Quentin. <laughs> and so I'd come in and everybody would be like, Quentin, Little Quentin's here. 
And I would just sit there and, he, you know, he would like recommend certain movies to me, movies that were wildly inappropriate for a 10, 10 and 11 year old. Uh, and my mom would let me watch them. And that was sort of the beginning of, I think, my film school education. Danny, my last question for you. Is there any redemption at all for the Sacklers? Like if you were advising the family or if you were part of that family, like is there any way they can salvage even a shred of their reputation? I think that's a really terrific question. You know, what I've been curious about is, is do they care, you know, or how much do they care? As far as, you know, redemption, maybe they've been holding off on any sort of profound mea culpa for legal reasons. Uh, I'm completely speculating here. I don't know what they possibly could do to redeem themselves that didn't begin with a massive apology, which they refused to do. You know, Richard Sackler just testified in the bankruptcy hearings and refuses to acknowledge any culpability or responsibility whatsoever for the opioid crisis. Uh, And I think many feel as if this show will at least expose the crimes and at least be the trial uh, that they never got. Great. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we've only seen the first episode of of Dope Sick. I cannot wait for the rest of it to roll out because uh, it's very, very good television. You know what else is one of my favorite pieces in the issue this week? It is courtesy of our good friend, Michael Lindsay Hogg. Oh, Michael, thank you. This is a great story. Michael Lindsay Hogg, for those of you who do know, those of you who don't, he uh, has had an amazing career, but in the 60s, he directed what were then even, weren't even called music videos for the Beatles. The last thing he directed for them was the classic 1970 Beatles film 51 years ago called Let It Be, which, as you all remember, ended up with them giving the concert on the roof of the Abbey Road building. And uh, this week... Michael Lindsay Hogg looks back and takes us inside how the Beatles ended up on the roof of the building giving a concert and how they didn't even end up going to the premiere of the movie when it came out because by then they had broken up. This is a great piece of music history and cultural history, and I love the fact that we have Michael Lindsay Hogg in our orbit who can tell us all about it. As he, you know, he points out, by 1969, uh, 70, the Beatles hadn't done any public appearances since their last tour in 66, which if you've ever seen, that was, it was total mayhem on that tour. That was one where like they were playing in the middle of Shea Stadium in Candlestick Park, and they couldn't even hear themselves singing, and, and it sort of put them off public touring. And so Michael takes us inside how this came to be, and one of my favorite details is like they're trying to figure out where to film, and at one point... Michael had suggested, why don't we do it in an amphitheater in Libya, in this ancient amphitheater? We'll do it beside the Mediterranean. The Beatles will play from sun up till sundown, and it'll be this sort of majestic, dramatic thing. Uh, they thought about maybe doing the Cavern, the Liverpool Club, where they are, the, the Liverpool Club, where Brian Epstein first spotted them. They couldn't decide where to do it. Finally, uh, at lunch on a Saturday, Michael throws out the idea and he says why don't we just shoot it on the roof john says shoot what he says a concert so they decide to do it but he said there's a moment as they're all sort of on the stairwell going up to the roof where they it didn't look like it was going to happen there's a little back and forth because ringo says as michael says quite rightly he says it's kind of cold up there and Ringo was concerned about everyone on the guitar being able to feel their frets and, and, and the strings. But since it was 46 degrees that day, and George says, well, what's the point? You know, he's not convinced to go. it. But as Michael says, Paul pushes to do it. And as he says, 
you know, Paul pushing is a pretty formidable force. So finally, John says, fuck it, let's do it. So they go up on the roof and the, that wonderful scene happens of them on the roof. But what he points out is, you know, this cut of the film that Peter Jackson is doing, which is coming out later this year, uh, it's he's working with 56 hours of footage that Michael shot, and he's going to re-edit that into a longer, more substantial concert-going experience. Marvelous. Well, it's a great story. All right, Michael, well, before we head off into the long weekend, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. I have just a cool little thing to recommend, and it comes courtesy of our new tech and gear columnist, Jonathan Margolis, who readers of the Financial Times may uh, have followed him over the last 20 or so years, I believe. And he's now joined the airmail staff and he's going to be reviewing tech and gear for us, writing about it every two weeks or as the Brits like to say, fortnightly. And he's got a wonderful, he's got three things in the issue this week in his, in his column. And there's something I had seen once during lockdown and then kind of forgotten about it, but he brings it up again, Jen Jonathan's column as a week. So drive and listen was started by a Turkish graduate student. It was a website, and it became this lockdown sensation where you can log on uh, at driveandlisten.herokuaapp.com, and it's simply footage of from shot from the driver's view of cities around the world as, a, as they're listening to a car radio. Could be local station, pop music, jazz, could be talk radio, but you've got you've got Paris, you've got New York, you've got Singapore, you've got Budapest, you've got Prague. And it's just this sort of this weirdly soothing sort of like way to kind of almost I think when we're staring at screens all day and just sort of be transported and it's like, you know, that pleasure of I just want to sort of go somewhere right now, but I don't have a car, I can't drive and and, and to just sort of it's and to and to I've listened. I've watched the one in Paris more times than I could uh, admit because it's so. I, I just sort of like find myself looking out the window of the car as French talk radio is going on and, and staring at the people on the street, and um, it sort of really truly does transport you. Uh, so if you're looking for a little moment of zen, highly recommend it. Courtesy of Jonathan Margolis. Oh, marvelous! And you, darling. I have two small things. Uh, the first is the new album from Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. I love this album. It's the two of them together are just so much fun. And there's no one like Tony Bennett, and there's also no one like Lady Gaga. So anyway, you can listen to it on Spotify. It's called Love for Sale. It was recorded, you know, probably over the course of about two years between 2018 and 2020. And they're just covering jazz standards, but they're so much fun. Okay. And number two? Number two is on a slightly more literary front. We reviewed this book back in April, and I just now got around to reading it. It's called Home Farm Cooking by John Pawson and Catherine Pawson. John Pawson is a very well-known architect. His wife, Catherine, has a long history in interior design. She worked at Colfax and Fowler for quite some time. Uh, And they have this really incredible home in the English countryside called Home Farm. And they spent five years building this house and the whole concept was to invite friends and family into a beautiful, simple setting in which they could share incredible meals. So in this book, they share a hundred of their favorite dishes and it's, it's just a very voicey, personal, beautiful cookbook and the recipes are totally solid too. So highly recommend that. Home Farm Cooking by John and Catherine Paulson. Hmm. Nice. All right. Well, as we head out into the long weekend, I'm going to steal a goodbye line from Alan Cumming, who we feature this week in our perfect ending column. His favorite way to say goodbye is to say this. Ready? Take care. Brush your hair. Say hi to Cher. So say hi to Cher, Michael. Hi, Cher. When you see her. (laughs) 
Hi, Cher. Don't miss this questionnaire. It's like we run these almost every week. And this one I think is the funniest we've ever done. It's cla- so many classic lines, so many body situations he gets himself in. It's great. Alan was a wonderful guest on the show. I encourage you uh, to go back into um, the older episodes and find that. And uh, he was delightful. I think we did him sort of going into holidays last Christmas. Yeah, he had just, I think he had just finished the book. Uh, it's his, I think, second memoir that's coming out now. And it's, I haven't read it yet, but I absolutely loved his first one, which was called Not My Father's Son. And he has a new memoir out called Baggage. And it's all about uh, the antics he's gotten himself into as he's traveled the world. There's no one funnier and there's no one really who's as full of heart as Alan. I think he's not only a beautiful writer, but also, as we all know, an incredible performer. And I was lucky enough to sit next to him at a dinner party during fashion week, and it was probably the highlight of my year. He is such an agile conversationalist who really makes you think about a lot of things while keeping you laughing the whole time. Alan, we love you. We need you back on the show. Indeed. All right, Michael. Well, on that note, will you please read us out? Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a fabulous weekend. Enjoy your weekend. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.